Praise the Lord. Thank you very much, Grace. Just judging from our worship, one could claim that we love God so much. Unfortunately, I was only seeing the worship team, so I wasn't seeing the people behind me. Anyway, that's none of my business. But if you claim you love the Lord so much, turn with me to John 14. John 14, our Lord says in chapters 1 to, sorry, John 14, chapters 21 to 23, um, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. That is verse 24. We can make a case for our love for God in very many ways. In the fervent worship that we offer to him. In the religious piousness of our lives. But Jesus says twice to his disciples as he's with them, those who love me obey my commands. A simple, clear, but important reminder that God calls us to love him through obedience to his commands. We've, we are continuing in the book of Ephesians, and today we are at chapter 4, verse 17 to 32. And as we start our reading for today, just a reminder for us as believers that God's word does not come to us without reason, without purpose, and definitely without effect. I have three passages that I'd like us to consider as we start. The first is 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, quite uh, well known. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we appreciate in that passage of scripture that God's word comes for doctrine, some versions will say teaching, for reproof, some versions will say um, rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good, every good. Uh, then we proceed to Hebrews 4.12, again one that is not so rare, people like it a lot. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Verse 13 for added emphasis. And there is no creature hidden from his side, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So God, God's word again to us functions first that it is alive and active and in its living power lays bare the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And finally, Psalm 119 Psalm 119, very long psalm, verse 130. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, the entrance of your word gives light. We put all those together and as we receive God's word this evening, my prayer is that indeed it will have that intended effect on us. I didn't mention the one in Isaiah where the scriptures say that... Uh, the Lord's word does not return to him void. It accomplishes the purpose for which he has sent it. So that is my prayer for us. This being our last Sunday this month, and as you all may be aware, if you've been with us, it's a ministry Sunday. Uh, it's something that you know, our youth pastor is leading us in and is very, very, very uh, important to the core of our ministry being effective. We want to spend extended time in prayer, and we will towards the end of this service. And I pray that God's word that comes to us today will inform, direct, and help us as we do that. At the heart of the message today is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Indeed, we are a new creation, but we are still stuck with an old court, uh, the flesh, if you want to call it, which is a remnant from our old sinful nature. We must put off the old court and put on a new court, one that is fitting and appropriate for our new nature, which has been created to be like God. This is something we must do continually on this side of eternity until that day when we finally put off this body. In the first three chapters, Paul has laid down a solid foundation of the Christian faith, and now upon that foundation, he begins to build the practical way of life that should follow that faith. Paul presents practical actions, behavior, attitudes, character that should follow as a result or fruit of faith in Christ. These actions in themselves do not bring about salvation, but are a visible result and an inevitable witness of that salvation. He therefore calls the Ephesians to exhibit such a life that is consistent with what they have believed. And so Paul begins this in chapter 4, and last Sunday we were reading from Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, and in verse 1 he begins, As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And that is what is at the heart of being a Christian, to become like Christ, to be like Christ, to be conformed to his image. Christians are not simply those who claim to be Christians because that is easy and cheap. You know, we, we know from the Gospels how a number of people came to Jesus and saying, Lord, Lord, we have done all these in your name. And in Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Very, very strong and clear words that we are not to assume that we are Christians simply because we continue to claim it, simply because we are surrounded by people who seem to believe it. It must be proved that we are indeed his children because of the way we live, because our lives are different. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, another letter to a church, one of the early churches, 2 Thessalonians chapter 4 from verse 3 to 8, this is what the scriptures say. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Oh, remember Matthew 7 says, but only the one who does the will of my father. So Thessalonians here, we are being given insight into God's will. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans do, who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God, in verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. To begin with this is to emphasize for us that Paul is making a transition from the first three chapters that are filled with theological truth, information, helping the believers understand how they got where they are, how they were saved, what did it take, what sacrifice, what price was paid. In the next three chapters, four, five, and six, he wants them to understand that this new life then cannot continue like the old one. And so we see in these other passages of scripture that I've read that it is imperative, important, inevitable that children of God must be different. They must be holy. They must be righteous. They must live pure lives. It's not something that is recommended or suggested. It is commanded. So those who prove themselves to be like Christ in the way that they put off their former way of life and walk in the new way of life in Christ, those are Christians. Because First John 2, 6 tells us, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So we thus have to strive to conform to the image of God in whose likeness we've been created. And so with that, we can now turn to our passage for today, which is Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. 
So Ephesians chapter 4, I'll read through from verse 17 all the way down to 32. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for, that, for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. That's the word of the Lord. Let me introduce a concept here that I, I hope will help us understand our message, uh, the message of God coming through our passage today. We understand man to be a single being that has a body. We, we easily get that from how we refer to our bodies. You say my body, right? You don't say me, my body. So we recognize it as being a, a sort of cloak or coat, like I said earlier, that we put on. I don't want us to go far today. I know there may be people here who have done deep analysis into how you can split the human personality, soul, mind, heart. Um, but we look throughout the scripture and how man is addressed and throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and we find that there is reference consistently to the inner man or the inner being and to the flesh. There seems to be a simple distinction between just two, who you truly are, who you actually are, and then this body that you have. And so that inner being, you as a person, that's the one that I would like us to remember. Because in Proverbs 23 verse 7, the Bible says, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That passage gives us an insight into a very, very important truth, that our actions proceed from who we are, from what we are, from how we think in our hearts and in our minds. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, verse 15 to 20, this is what Jesus says. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear fruit, does that, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In verse 20, thus by their fruit you will recognize them. In that passage, Jesus is pointing to that same insight that we may not know who you are on the inside, but we will see. The fruit will tell. We may, you may not have had the privilege of going to a school and learning about the scientific name of the mango tree. But when you stay long enough around that tree, you will know this is a mango tree because those fruits will come out. So Paul makes it very clear to the Ephesian believers in verse 17, we're about to read that, that they must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And he insists on this in the Lord. 
And as we've seen earlier, this is not just a preference or a suggestion. This is the command of God. They are a new creation and therefore must act as a new creation. And that is, they must be different. Indeed, if they're a new creation, they must think and live differently from the rest of the world. So we, we need to see what we're going to read in Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, not just as the recommendations of one of the apostles or as the well-intentioned ideas, but as the very word of God, as holy scripture, and that they carry the same weight and significance for every believer. To heed these instructions is to obey God himself. To reject them is to reject God. Verse 17 to 19. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. To begin to unpack just that passage and the references that Paul makes about those who are Gentiles, the shift of Gentiles now. We've known Gentiles all through to be Jews and then everyone else is Gentiles. Here Paul uses Gentiles to refer to those outside the church not just those who are not Jews. And so to referring to pagans, people who do not know God, Paul begins by reminding these believers of what they were, who they were. It's difficult for us to appreciate the new life and the standard to which God calls us if we are not honest with what we were or who we were. It's, it's a mark of many churches where they don't entertain sin and they don't entertain speaking negatively about believers. How can you call us sinners? In fact, many Christians are offended when sin or sinner is used in any way to address them because they feel they have risen above that level. But it is for that very reason that we need to be reminded lest we lose the right understanding of how precious our salvation is and how important it is that we don't go back where we came from. One mark of people that are in the world, pagans who do not know God, is that they are futile in their thinking. The people in the world are trapped in a vain, hopeless pursuit of self-centered gratification of the flesh. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 3. And we've done this in the weeks before. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. Doing what? Gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That is the life of those who are separate from God pagans who do not know God. That is a way of the sinful nature. Such people are their own gods and they seek to please themselves in everything they do. It all revolves around I and me, what I want, what works for me. It is self-serving. Honestly, they have no purpose in themselves and have no hope beyond this life. They live empty, useless, hopeless lives. They are slaves to sin. They accomplish nothing of eternal significance. And in fact, they cannot because they are separate from God. That sounds like a very harsh way to describe someone. It sounds like it's demeaning. You're you're disregarding all the social action that's out there in the world. But that's what the scripture said. I just read it from Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Separate from God, that is what we were. That is a former way of life. Let's consider the words in Ecclesiastes, chapters 1, verse 3, and chapters 2, verse 11. In chapter 1, verse 3, the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? It's very easy to respond and say, no, they gain a good life, they gain 
uh, security, they gain, blah, blah, blah. You can name an endless list. This teacher in Ecclesiastes was not a broke man like me. When he said, what do people gain? He had the things. He had the wealth. He had amassed riches, possessions. He didn't lack. And so with all those things, he finds himself empty. He finds they are not satisfying. He finds they are not filling a void that he still has. And so he asks, what do, perhaps someone else has got it. What do people gain? That's a question that those that are without God cannot answer. But we can help them. It's nothing. They gain nothing. Because irrespective of how much wealth you amass, irrespective of what caliber you rise to, whatever profession, name, in any way, fame, popularity, all of it, when you come to that day, you live here with us. Those of us will still be around anyway. And so you go naked the way you came. So you see that you've gained nothing. People who do accounting understand sometimes because there are guys who start a business, you have 2,000, you invest it, everything ends and you have 2,000. You're like, I've made money. You've done nothing. Eh? Work done, effort, distance moved. You are 2,000, you're back at 2,000. So in the beginning, says, naked we came into the world and naked we shall exit it. So when you toil under the sun, and then at the end, you go away the way you came. What have you gained? Nothing. That's what it means to be separate from God. Vain pursuits. Chapter 2, verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve. Remember I say this guy had done a lot. Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. But we are not so. We have a new way of life, a purpose in Christ. We are not chasing wind. The reason why we are broken, why we are disturbed when we lose things that we have is because we have replaced God with them. But that's not what God has called us for, and we will see that. Because in Ephesians 2.10, again, we saw that a couple of weeks back, we are God's workmanship, handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, in contrast to the people in the world, to pagans who don't know God, believers are called to think, to function, to desire, to pursue whatever they do, in accordance to God's will and purpose. Not their own. Not their own. The world is on a constant agenda of individualism, telling you how it's your dreams that are valid. It's you. It's you. What do you want? What works for you? The world is constantly blocking God out and putting us on the throne and saying, Johnson, you're the captain of your ship. You're the captain of your salvation. You determine your destiny and how nice those words are. How encouraging, how esteem-building they are to hear someone tell you that you're in control of your destiny. But my friend, the devil has never been more craftier. He comes before Eve and you'd think he'd tell her, don't do that thing. You'll, you're going to create a curse for all your descendants. You know what he says? Ah, ah. God is overreacting. You'll be just like him. He promises God-likeness. He promises similar authority, power, ability with God. And that's what we want to hear. But that's not the truth. Because God in this new life hasn't called us to think and live for ourselves, but for him. The people in the world are ignorant of God and of the truth. When you've grown up in a post revival period in Uganda like all of us have grown up if you have anyone who was there in the revival they are probably your grandparent hey, your parent if they are very old but now we are saturated with the gospel in quotes if you have time just walk through Kampala you will tell me street preachers at every corner billboard speaking Jesus talking about the gospel so when I tell you that there are people who are ignorant of the truth and don't know God it's as though I'm joking but it's the truth the people in the world live in darkness 
They are blind and ignorant of the light that is in God. First John chapter 1 verse 5 to 6 says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we claim that we have been born again and have been created anew in Jesus and claim that we have a relationship with God, yet walk in darkness, we do just two things. One, we lie because we are lying that we have been born again. We are lying that we have been created anew. We are lying that we are a new creation because we are practicing all things. Two, we don't practice the truth. I like the word practice because it suggests that the truth is not just a noun. It can be a verb. It can be seen in the way that we live. People in the world have rejected God in their hearts and have no interest in the truth. Therefore, God has given them over to their sinful desires and they continue to plunge themselves into the depths of sin and evil. We read they continue to indulge in every form of impurity. So those for whom those are the people for whom there seems to be no limit to their sinful cravings. They've lost even the basic senses of men. Uh, they exchange natural human desires for unnatural ones. They follow helplessly as slaves because that is what they are to their sinful cravings. There is a very heavy judgment in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, and I will read it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and they were inflamed with lust for one another. Did you see this in the world? What I'm, what I'm reading, are you seeing it in the world? I'm reading too fast. Let me read that part slowly because you guys are part of the church doing these things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie at verse 25 and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. You will understand. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what they ought not to be done they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, continue to do these things, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You don't see this in the world. Maybe you don't want to know, but... So, that's a very stark picture of that former way of life, where we were trapped in sin and were slaves to sin. Now, in verse 20 to 24, Paul then turns the page, and he says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught 
with regard to your former way of life, my hope is that now no one can say they don't have a former way of life. Yeah? You may not have been as extreme as the guys in Romans, but you recognize that you had a former way of life, or you still have it, and you're holding on to it. But you are taught in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul makes a distinction and says, that is how you are. That is the life you lived. Now you've been born again, brought into the kingdom of light. This is how you ought to live. Unless there is a distinction in your way of living, there is a very good possibility that there is no distinction in your nature either. It's very easy, and I said at the start, that it's easy to claim to be a Christian. It's probably, no, it definitely is easier than to live like one. But the challenge that Paul is giving these Ephesians is, what guarantee do you have that you're a Christian when nothing about your life resembles Christ. In fact, it would be a painstaking activity to find differences between your life and the life of people in the world. So if there is no distinction, if when you go into the world you blend, you mingle so much that we can't identify you or you, you can't, no one can tell you apart, where do you get the confidence that somehow you'll on that day tell us, no guys, I was undercover, but really I'm on your side. Uh, that, that list isn't there. There are no undercover agents in the kingdom of God. They are all out in the open. And so the Ephesians are reminded about what they learned and were, to- and, and were taught when they came to Christ regarding their former way of life, what they were told to put away and what they were told to embrace. Many times we are, we, ha, we are challenged in our faith because of experiences that we go through. The loss of a loved one, failure, whether it's school or life, a deep betrayal or anger or hurt. Many things challenge our faith and the existence of God and whether he loves us. But nothing challenges our faith more than scripture. We just don't want it to. There is no letter where Paul writes and he doesn't challenge believers about whether they are believers. No letter. Even the shortest one. No letter. Why? Because that is it. You must make every effort to, be, to confirm your faith. It's, not, it's a matter of life and death, so it can't be handled lightly. Paul is writing to people, a church he personally went to and started. But see the things he's telling them. He takes nothing for granted. He's like, you guys may have come on the day I came and you liked me. But you didn't like Jesus. So therefore, I will ask you, what were you taught when you came to Christ? And so up to this point, it's very clear that there is an old way of life and a new life. It's very clear for the Ephesians that if they claim to be in Christ, if they came to be a new creation, there is a standard they must live by. There is a God they must follow. There is a God to whom they will be accountable. Through chapters 1 to 3, Paul is describing all of that about this God and what he has done. And now in 4, 5, and 6, he's telling them how they should live that out. How that new life works out, you know, in every aspect of their experience. How their minds must be transformed. How they are thinking, their attitudes. Everything about them must be made new. Therefore, those of us who claim to be in Christ no longer have a self-centered mentality. Life, at least this one that God created, does not revolve around you. There is, there is poison that tastes bitter, but that poison tastes sweet. To be directed to yourself, to be raised and elevated, to feel, is poison that definitely kills but tastes sweet. And so we know that we who look to Christ and live for him 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, And he died for all, that those who live 
should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You can defend that individualism philosophy all you want. You can show us its benefits and how it has helped people overcome uh, being shy and now they are confident. You can can whatever you can. But the scriptures say those who live no longer live for themselves. That's what the old way of life is like. People in the world live for themselves. It's me and what I want and what I need to get. I will do whatever I need to do to get what I need to get. In the kingdom of God, no. You don't do whatever you have to do to get what you get. There are things that God doesn't allow. If you're sitting an exam, you, you want to pass and you convince yourself God wants you to pass. Therefore, you must do whatever it takes to pass. That list is limited. You can't cheat. No, you can't, but you shouldn't. Right? Have you had believers? Eh, God was with me. My neighbor's paper fell down. That's not God. I was talking to the teens in the morning and we're discussing some of those things that happened in the exam period. I didn't want to look, but the guy pushed the paper here near me. You didn't want to look. Like your eyes have such a wide angle of view. No longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. So our way of life is different from the world. The mind we are called to have is the same mind that was in Jesus. And so we also know that for as long as we live, and I said earlier, this is part of our Christian journey, that we are continually putting off the old self, putting off the ways of the world, and desiring, pursuing to become like God. There is a question that Christians like to ask. We like to ask, but it's quite foolish. We like to ask, how far is too far? In fact, you approach Councilor Juliana perhaps and say, so I know the law says you shouldn't, but what if I just like one leg, not both legs? And so you want her to tell you where you can stretch the law a bit, where you can adjust the boundaries of the law as to what is illegal and not legal, right? And so we approach God the same way. We say, so God, I know you said we have to live for you, but you know, this is really my dream, and you know, you grant us the desires of our hearts, so is it okay if you guys... When we ask such questions, are we trying to be like God? No, we are trying to be like ourselves, our form of life. We're saying, now God, thank you. Really, we, your ideas are good. Wow. Now, have you considered... We've just admitted, and then we want to bring in and say, is it okay if in our praise and worship we bring, there's some smoke that really can change the atmosphere. How would you feel? Wouldn't it raise the presence of the spirit? Ah, is, are, are we really trying to? No, you see you guys, you have access. You see these things. There are, there are, there are churches you can go to and you're not sure whether you're in Gwangamuchi who you are worshiping the Lord. Because the level is, is up there. Praise the Lord. That's what it means to conform to the standards of the world. That the world says, you want to have a good experience. Ah, you need a fog machine, guys. Ah, you guys at your church, your lights don't move. They're static. Ah, our lights are. That's the standards of the... Where in scripture are we required to have lights to worship God? Where is smoke a necessary inducement for the work of the Spirit? Nowhere. But here believers asking, Reverend Gerald, do you think really this smoke, we need to offend God? Guys, I think for me that that is foolish. Because we, are, we want to come to the edge of where God has placed boundaries for us and ask him. So, eh? if, if, how far is too far? But that, what business do you have at the border? You, you see, you Ugandans, you guys don't even go to the... When was the last time you went to Gatuna for Rwanda? When was the last time you went to Busia for Kenya? What be, you're here, in fact, you want to be here so much because you know it's so safe. If anything happened, there's tear gas, what? Ha, ah, man, they're at the border. By the time the army reaches you, some guys may have taken you already, right? But in our Christian walk, we want to be at the border. Why? In fact... Geography is so kind that they've not left the border so defined. They've created a no man's land. Should by some mistake you find yourself at the border, you have a lot of space to remind you, you, you really, this is, no one should be here. Like you're either in Uganda or you're in Kenya. 
Ah, but Christians, we want to test the limits of the boundaries. And I think that that is foolish. So as a believer, when you catch yourself testing God's boundaries and saying, so we, we just talked. We didn't do anything. We just smiled. Say, so you want to see what can happen after smiling? You're going down a slippery. Because what could you possibly gain? Just think with me. What could we possibly gain from stretching the bounds of the limits that God has given us to walk in this new life? Nothing. In fact, we only look for pain, heartache, heartbreak, disappointment, because we have strayed beyond the fence. So, in verse 25 to 32, and I'm at the last part as we wind up, this is what the scriptures say. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let us consider some of these things for our application. You may have said, you've, you know, these are the Ephesians. Their you know, environment was different. They lived at a different time. Our pressures are much different. You don't understand. There's this social media. There's the government. There's taxes. The economy also came. <laughs> we, let's consider these things and see that they apply both to us very much as they did for them. The first command or instruction that Paul gives is put off falsehood and speak the truth. We must put off falsehood and speak the truth because the world functions on lies. Did you guys know that? Is that a secret? Eh, okay, it's a secret, so I shouldn't say it. So, the world functions on lies. I promise. If one guy made a mistake and sent the wrong text. Hi. The world, not just Uganda, like the world. If for some reason, the conversations that are held within those secret rooms leaked. You see, we think we understand what's going on with Ukraine and, and Russia. We don't. What you, what you see, what you're being told is what you're being told. You have no guarantee that it's the truth. Everyone will say, ha, Western media is biased, they show this. African media is biased, they show this. So, the whole system of the world is founded on its native language that comes from its father, and those are lies. You, if a guy came, this is a bit sensitive, so listen, I don't want to say it so loud. If one guy from that department came and said, guys, the truth, NSSF, this is what happened. What do you think would happen? You can't do that. You have your... your CEO, you have your deputy CEO, your acting CEO, and they all have a story. You cannot be different. You have to maintain. We don't know where the money went. That's it. You guys, many things can vanish. Eh? Money doesn't disappear. It, it goes somewhere. But that's just one. You think politics. Yeah? You're told this political party, that political party, this is what they're doing. This MP is coming. You know, I want to serve you guys. I want to bring development. The last you see of him. Until the next elections. What do you think he was doing? Lying. You have to tell the people you love them and you're going to develop their place. That's how they'll vote you, right? The guy has no intentions of doing nothing for you. He's just going to eat. In fact, one of the politicians was so generous, said, you guys, the first time you voted me was for me to eat. Now vote me and we eat together. I was like, yeah, that guy is honest. But that, that guy is a small guy. But the entire system of the world, honest, go, go and check for yourself. The world functions on lies, on deception, on keeping people deceived. Telling people things that are not okay are okay. 
How else would we find the things that they are doing? If for one day we all spoke the truth, I, it would crumble, implode. If the world has to maintain lies, it has to maintain deceitfulness, but not so us. We are not like that. In John 8, 44, this is what Jesus says to some liars. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of. In Ephesians 2, we understood that the prince and the powers of the air that control the world lies. Don't be deceived that there is anything honest about the world. That's at your own risk. If they tell you things and you believe them, because the world cannot bear the truth, in all honesty. I mean, how long is long? When you have to tell someone it's been long, you think they don't know? You, you think they've not been counting time? The world's its systems, its religions. For this one, the reverend may never call me again to preach. In this church, religions, lies. Lies. Blind faith and adherence to religious leaders is, eh, is damning. They are not Christ. They can, I mean, am I talking too much, reverend? We know what the Church of England at least has done. So then we say, Amunanga, this is the Church of England. You see, there are four fathers. We go. Really? Why is it that we are willing to put our foot down on that? I mean, homosexuality is where we draw the line? What about all the other things that the church is doing? That's the only one. You guys are nice. Paul turns to these believers and tells them, the only standard is the truth, and it is the truth of God. No man has a monopoly whether they have been elected to the highest office in this church, they are still subject to the truth and authority of God. They have no authority to make any changes to scripture, to tell us how we ought to believe God. It is there. But remember, the world must function on lies. If the people want something, how can you refuse it? You guys think the archbishop came up with that idea? The people, you guys, said, ah, now... The entire country has said this thing is digo. Now we are not looking good. I tell you, you know the budget, there is this money coming from the government, so we need to, let's not say we are going to do it like this. Let's, lies. The truth is so bland, so clear. So if you've been wondering, how do you apply this in your life? Speak the truth. You try. Sometimes the reason we don't have any hardship in our Christian life is we just don't talk the truth. Right? Right? Yeah, you just, I mean, you, you go to work and like, no, it's okay. But you try talking the truth and see how long you last. So, but that's what we've been called to do, right? Please, speak the truth. Anger. These are all our things, eh? Let's begin the way we will end on anger. James chapter 1 verse 20. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now we start. We are all angry. I say, the government has annoyed us. Our parents annoy us. Our siblings annoy us. Our children. Anger, anger, anger. Like people are offending us all the time. So, in Paul's letter, he doesn't tell these people, don't be angry. That would, be a, that would be hypocrisy. He knows they get angry. He knows they have things that will oppress and disturb and, you know, grieve them. And so the scriptures say, in your anger, which you love and have and guard with so much, huh? it's my anger. Do you know I'm so angry I can do not sin? The Good News Version that simplified says, do not let anger control you and lead you into sin. So we could justify our anger all day. That's not in contention. You're so even, I mean, we're having a conversation about this, and some guy said, ah, even Jesus was angry. He entered the temple, turned the tables. You see, so even me, I, I am going to go to work and just, <laughs> you guys, I don't like the way you work here. Ah, 
Now you're Jesus. You're, you're, turning, you're turning the tables for what? We need to ask ourselves, why does James say human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires? Not, may not, sometimes feels, doesn't. Me, I consider it as clear as it is in the text. Absolute. Human anger, brew it all you want, will never produce the righteousness God desires. Do you know why? It's from the old way of life. Which someone did Jesus preach and he preached anger? Where I told guys, you need to be angry. You guys are not angry enough. Hey, how can he step on you and you? Contrary. Someone slaps you this side. Ha, this ends. What? I jab him. You slap, yeah, you slap me. You, you step on my toes. You take something that's mine. You, you, you say something against me. That's the world. Christians, you can do anything to them. They don't live for themselves. What can you do? I mean, we, to scale it, the scriptures say, do not fear mortal men who can do nothing. Fear God who can harm both the body and soul. That's Jesus drawing us away from that idolatry of self, saying this is how you ought to be, free even from the idolatry of self. If you feel that there is something you could achieve with anger, you, you will try, but... We see from scripture so much that God is pleased to achieve his work with other tools. With tools like mercy, kindness, patience, grace, holiness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, imagine if anger was on the list of the fruit of the spirit. Wouldn't we then make a case for it? But it's not there. Because you already have it. It's from your former self. And God is telling us, put off that anger that drives you to take up the place of God, plan revenge, repay evil for evil, all which are contrary to what Christ teaches. The last two or three. He tells them that those who have been stealing should steal no longer. If I made a mistake and said thieves here, put up your hands, no one can do that. Right? Please encourage me. If someone wanted that, don't, Kathy. Eh. No one can do that. Okay? Because none of us would I'm a thief, me. What did I take? Interestingly, like all the generations before us, all the way from Adam, we all struggle with the idea of work. I don't know many people who you tell work and they're like, yeah, where is it? We do it. Ah. The Ephesians must have struggled as well. Why would Paul tell them, stop stealing and work? They must have had a guy or two who had been known to take people's things in a fellowship meeting. You guys, am I lying? In this church here, bugs have gone missing. Hi, Grace is our day. She can tell you they have statistics. Phones. Worship team guys have stepped up. You go back, the choir pews, the phone is not there. So Paul is telling believers and he's telling them among you, there are those who still live like the old self. Work. Many of us, if not all of us, are so easily enticed by the idea of a soft life. Do we have any ambassadors here? You're just soft life ambassador. No, it's not you. It's just the organization you represent we want to address. Okay, people are feared. So the idea of soft life, like, ah, man, Jesus knows me. I'm in Jesus' hands. Me, I don't, I don't. You guys, you, you hustle. You guys, the ways of the world. A life, listen, a life where we have everything we want without having to work for it. Isn't that theft? Where do you get it? You, you want everything. You're like, I need this, I need this, I need this. Hey, this came out, this came out. I need all of it. You can't afford it. You steal. Okay, fine. Let's make a case for gifts. But gifts really come once in a while. And most times you don't get to choose. So chances are high. They're always giving you the wrong gift. The thing you want, they're not. I want a phone. They bring a techno. You're like, ah, Jesus. Your dreams were a bit higher. But when we begin to consider work to be synonymous with suffering, Christians, are we together? When we begin to consider work as the absence of God's blessings, when we begin to consider work a curse that, ah, God, this month you need to locate me and set me free from this, ah, we, are we being like God? Consider the beginning of the holy book. What does God do? 
because he's the first actor. In the beginning, God took a retreat. He went on a vacation because uh-uh, people were really stressing him. God was at work. First solid six days at work. You see, we want to limit work to a paying job. But work extends through even that young man there can work, that one. Proper work. Tell him now, today you are the one clearing here. Uh-huh. Work. So work in scripture is not defined as do, then they pay you. Those are wages. Labor. That's labor. You guys are actually laboring. You're not working. You're, just, you're doing hard labor. Whether it's white collar, blue collar, it's just labor. But we see that the biblical perspective on work, because Colossians will tell us whatever you do, work at it with all your whatever you work with all your heart as though you're serving not do you see the difference people in the world work to afford something build a name build a career have this car fancy blah, 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 period we don't work you guys if that's all you're working for i pray today that god will redirect your mind that work is it's difficult, and that's why we have some ministries of, you know, workplace, to remind people who are in a workplace where the environment has twisted you so much that you don't see anything that's God-honoring there. You just go, endure it, nine to five, nine to five, and the weekend feels like a touch of paradise. That's not a good place to be. God wants us to know how in that work, wherever we are, we can be serving his purpose. It's not easy but with something that we are called to pursue. So serious that in one of his letters to the Thessalonians, this is what Paul says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. To Christians, telling them, those guys who just want to push, let them push. They shouldn't come when it's time for lunch. Because he says, they are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. He's telling believers, so work is therefore not an enemy to resist, but a means of God's grace and an avenue for service in this new life. Friends, we must kill those desires in us to be lazy. We must train ourselves to work. It's not easy, it's not comfortable. But we must, because we are putting off the old self and putting on the new. Our thoughts about work, our attitudes must be different. If at your workplace, the guys in the world and you are the same, either you're doing something so wrong or you're doing nothing. But you try to have this mindset, there will be a difference. He's very clear about what words proceed from the mouth. We read earlier from Matthew where Jesus tells the people that no good tree will bear bad fruit. And so in their speech, Paul tells them that as believers in this new life, let your conversation be for the simple purpose of building others up, encouraging them, helping them according to their need, not tearing them down, not discouraging them, not embarrassing, not shaming have you guys been to the comment section on social media? That place is hell. People say things and you feel you're alone, but you're like, how could someone say that to another person? Heartless. When we read in Ephesians and in Romans and we saw depraved minds, it was serious. People so depraved that they can't draw the line between here you've gone too far. They just go. We must remind ourselves that our conversation needs to always be full of grace. In Colossians, it says that it should be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we know how we ought to answer everyone. We know how we ought to speak. Because without a doubt, our words have an effect on people. They influence people. They, they have a, something that they do. So, for those who live in Christ, those who are new creation, your words ought to build your words ought to lift others up. Your words ought to help them according to their need, not to put them down. I will close with these two, and I will invite the reverend to continue to lead us. The first is one that we will continue to explore even in our 
service next Sunday because Paul addresses it more directly in chapter 5, and that is sexual immorality. Uh, sexual immorality is such a, it's a prevalent thing with us. In fact, I think the word immorality is going off a bit because now it's just sex and sexual. People don't want, why are you calling it immoral? Why are you, why are you being so negative? This is God created. Why? Yeah, the agenda of the world, they are, they are presenting it. We have seen in the, in the last few months an uproar of parents saying they don't want to take their children to certain schools. And because of this material that's being propagated, things are being told. And so I, I wouldn't be fair if I didn't say something about this. Now, some people claim, Christians or not, that the Christian teaching or the biblical perspective on sex is very limiting. Hmm? It's oppressive. It doesn't allow us to extend the full exercise of our rights. That's what they think. In fact, that I just remove those obstacles. An impediment to human progress is this conservative thinking that's biblical. But let's listen. Christianity was not born in a world where things were okay. See, when I say Christianity, don't go back to Moses. Just start here in the New Testament. So that means you've left Sodom behind. Eh? You see where Christianity found the world. You see, sometimes we see homosexuality and we want to, ha, ha, it's not new. You guys, you guys just don't want to talk about bad things. But homosexuality is not new. Ask, ask Abraham's nephew Lot what they had done to him and the angels that came to visit. Depraved minds. So it's not new. So I'm just reminding us of the truth that we already know. There were no restrictions on the extent of sexual immorality, even in our own African cultures. No extent. What do you mean someone should be married at the age of... Girls were married at any age the father saw fit. Men were free to have as many women as they want. Is that freedom? Is that freedom that we've learned in Christ? That's not freedom. Christianity, Christ, we were singing here. Um, one of the songs about being freed and set free and how God is fighting and pushing back the darkness and... One of the things that God freed us from was the power of sin, that we can choose to say no to sin and say yes to a godly life in Christ. Christianity freed men and women from being mere sexual objects because that was not God's intended design for sex. We must embrace the biblical teaching on sex if we want to get it right. Any other advice... I tell my young friends all the time, the only thing you, know, you need to know about sex is it's for married people. If that's all the information you have, you'll be fine. But now you want to understand, but, but what if I feel like this? My friend, the only thing you need to know, if you're here and you're not married and you want to know about sex, get married. If, if that's the goal. If for you, God told you that sex is the reason why marriage should happen. It's not. And that's the way of the world, that sex has been raised up as an idol, a thing that everyone should pursue, that young people who are not having sex are sick. What do you do? Your friends in the world that are sleeping around every day look at you and say, but are you normal? Depraved mind. And so my encouragement to you is, in God's design, in the Christian perspective on sex, it's for married people. That's where God, remember we said boundaries? That's where God enclosed it and said, keep it there. Granted, even within marriage, we have sexual immorality. Now you want to bring it out? People who have made covenants are breaking them. You, you have nothing. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 13, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It couldn't be any clearer than that. Finally, we consider all that Paul says to them, the things that he tells them to put away, the things that he tells them to consider. And he closes with forgiveness. Forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ. Until we come to terms with the depth of how much God in Christ has forgiven us, we will think too highly of ourselves and struggle to forgive others.
you can never be offended in a magnitude greater than that in which you offended God. You need to remember that. You can never, no man, no woman can ever offend, violate your rights, can ever do whatever it is to a magnitude that is greater than what you did to God to require the sacrifice of his son. That was the ultimate. And so when you think about forgiveness, for whatever reason, whether it's within your family, within your friends, colleagues, wherever, name it, you can explain, you can justify why they don't deserve to be forgiven. The problem is you don't take time to remember that you never qualified to be forgiven. You never were worthy, deserving of God's forgiveness. It was given to you freely. When Paul calls these believers and says, within the world, when someone wrongs you, when someone does something against you, the medicine is do it back to them. Equal measure. Revenge served best cold. If it was an eye, take two. That's what the world does. Repay evil with evil. Don't let them get the upper hand. Don't let them have the last laugh. When you come into the kingdom of God, he says, revenge is mine. Yours is to love even those who hate you. That's the new way of life. And so everything that Paul has been talking about from chapter 1 to 3, now he says, you can boast about all the faith. You can say you have all the theological knowledge. You can amass whatever it is you want. But the new life must be different. You could be here and you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We never take it for granted. Paul doesn't. We are always proclaiming Christ because it is only in his name that we have salvation. And perhaps you've never made the decision to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Our hope is that today you have the opportunity to do that. You could be here and say, but I'm a Christian. I'm already here. It's just that I'd wandered away from God or I'd turned away I'd stopped being part of fellowship or, you know, meeting with Christians. I'd gone into my own corner and decided to just live my life the way I want. Again, our hope is that today you would receive God's embrace as he welcomes you back because his love is unconditional. His mercy is never-ending. His embrace is always open to receive his children. You could be here and say, perhaps, me, I'm okay. Everything, um, I'm fine. Everything you've said, these guys need to listen. And you would feel you're okay, even for you. Our hope is that you'd be encouraged. You know, the Bible warns us and says, be careful if you think you stand, lest you fall. So you can't, at any point in your life, think you've arrived. So our encouragement is, if you've been running the race and you feel you're running well, our hope is that you will continue. That God uh, will give you the strength to continue to run that race faithfully. So God has called us to become like him, to be conformed to the image of his son, to put off the old self and to put on the new self.